All right, it's good to uh, join you again this evening as we continue our study through the book of Romans. Uh, again, we're still in Romans chapter 6, and we'll continue through that trek um, through this evening. Again, just a reminder that we will not be live streaming on Wednesday nights anymore. Uh, the format that we're going to follow, we're going to be doing in-person Bible study here back at the church, and the format we're going to follow doesn't really lend itself to live streaming. We are going to try recording it. Uh, and if, if anyone is interested, uh, they can get the recordings on our uh, website. We'll see how that goes. Um, if there's not any real interest, then we'll probably stop recording. It's, it's not a big deal either way. Uh, but the goal on Wednesday nights is to kind of have a more of a uh, informal uh, atmosphere where people feel free to ask questions. That's really what I want is uh, so that you know people can interrupt at any time, ask questions, uh, either to have something clarified or perhaps a question pops up in the mind of the individual that was uh, created because of whatever we're covering. Uh, and so kind of have a, a back and forth and, and discuss issues as they arise. So that's kind of the goal, and that will begin next Wednesday. Uh, so next Wednesday, 7 p.m. at the in the Fellowship Hall, uh, we'll have in-person study. So let's pray, and then we'll jump back into Romans. Father, as always, we are grateful for your love for us and again for your word. Father, we ask that your word would always have a great impact on us. Father, we know that we are called by you to continue to change, to become more like Christ. We know, Lord, that we don't always make the kind of progress that we should make. There are different things that kind of get in the way of that. And Father, we need your help to continue to pursue holiness and righteousness, as well as to pursue the knowledge of God. So we ask, Father, for your blessing on our study tonight as we continue through Romans, in particular, Father, in chapter 6. And we ask, Lord, as always, that it be beneficial and profitable for all of us. We do thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let me begin by reading this to you. Uh, because we live in an age that dreads old age and is fearful of death, aging does hold a special terror for individuals, especially those who kind of are afraid of dependence, meaning they'll be depending upon others to get them around, depending upon others maybe to help them with day-to-day -day routine tasks because, you know, sometimes along with age, our abilities can become debilitated uh, and diminish quite a bit. So um, there's a fear of dependence. A lot of individuals, their self-esteem uh, requires really the admiration of other people. And normally that kind of admiration is reserved for those who are young, those who are beautiful, or those who are a celebrity, or perhaps someone has a special charm. So we have kind of an emptiness uh, in our lives. Um, sometimes that emptiness is there. Either it's caused by or it contributes to our refusal to deal with the realities of life. Uh, meaning we don't really deal with our sins and our shortcomings. Um, and uh, because of this refusal, that kind of bears some fruit. So we are neurotic. Uh, I've read a couple of books where individuals said that we are neurotic in at least 700 different ways. And oftentimes, to our detriment, our faith as Christians doesn't really touch it. It really can't touch it because it, it's powerless. Um, it seems that we have abandoned real life. We've abandoned the, the truth that changes us. We've abandoned wisdom. We've abandoned that uh, the idea that Christ is and all that he has for us. Um, because again, the idea of dealing with sin can sound archaic and negative. It requires too much self-work, self-denial, and thinking. And we don't want any of that. And so as a result, we have a lot of issues in our life. So let me read to you from Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Paul writes, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. <clears throat> he, um, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead, indeed, to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, 
that you, do, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So let's look back at verse 11 in particular. Focus on that. Where again he says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So think about it this way. In this verse, Paul is telling us to engage our minds as Christians. And he's telling us that we need to purposely or intentionally think about something. And the idea here is that in relation to my life and how it relates to the power of sin, uh, the strength of temptation, the, the pull to do evil, he says that I am to look at myself and to consider myself to be dead to that power. In other words, if I am dead to something, it doesn't have any power over me because I'm dead. I, I, I can't respond to it. So I'm to be dead to sin, but I'm alive to God. That's kind of a, a basic attitude and thought process that Paul is encouraging and wants us to have. So again, this there's a basic principle in the Word of God. And this basic principle is that people, that's believers, must first know what is true before they can obey God. So the thrust of the first word there in verse 11, likewise or even so, the, the thrust of that is this. You must know and fully believe what I have just said, or else what I am about to say will make no sense. The truth that you are spiritually dead to sin and the reality that you are spiritually alive to God is not abstract concepts for your finite minds to attempt to verify. They are divinely revealed. They are foundational axioms behind Christian living, apart from which you can never hope to live the holy lives your new Lord demands. So in that paragraph there that I just read, again, the idea is, is that we're dealing with really the basics, fundamental foundational truths of the Christian life. So, Again, remember that when you and I become Christians, when we became Christians, when people become Christians today, this is not where we just kind of adopt something like you've adopted a, a new favorite football or baseball team and you buy their jersey and you put it on and that's it. Uh, the idea of becoming a Christian is there is to be this absolute transformation concerning everything about you. And there are some things that we are to consciously do. And one of them is to think about our life. To think about our life a lot. This is not to be a drudgery. Uh, this is not to be something that is um, uh, overly demanding. So it may be demanding, but it's not overly demanding. Uh, we are to spend time doing this. We are to move away from just daydreaming and doing mindless things. We are to engage our mind as Christians. It doesn't mean that you and I can't think of other things, because of course we can. But there is this sense that this is a, a, a not only a life-changing uh, change in our position as, as, as believers, as people, but that it is to be a dynamic that affects every aspect of our life. Um, and so it's crucial that we really grab on to this truth. Because if we don't, we're really going to flounder in our lives as Christians. And I do believe that there's a good number of Christians that flounder. It's not that they, it's not that they always intentionally do that. No one says, I want to flounder as a Christian. But because they don't really think about it much, they find themselves in that position. But for too many, they kind of think that's normal. And we just kind of haphazardly go about our life we attend church i guess when we can and we don't understand when christianity appears to be less than fulfilling when our spiritual life tends to be less than stellar uh, where we find ourselves going through maybe the same kind of confusion and anger and frustration 
that we went through before we became believers, or we find ourselves going through this just as often as unbelievers. We don't really seem to experience the peace of God. There doesn't really seem to be that calm and approaching life. We panic like everybody else does. Uh, I think that um, over the over the past 12 months or so, maybe actually more, as we've dealt with all the various restrictions coming about as a result of COVID, um, I understand that COVID is a real disease. Uh, it really is dangerous, especially to a certain group. Uh, it's not dangerous to everyone. It is dangerous to those who have diabetes. Uh, it's dangerous to those who have congestive heart failure. It's uh, dangerous to those who are grossly overweight. Um, it is um, dangerous to those who have COPD. It is dangerous to those who are over the age of 80. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions to that and others may have a hard time with it, but primarily that's what it is. And there's been, I believe, an overreaction by our government where we have quarantined the sick. And even though there is this idea that we need to follow the science, we're not following the science. Um, there are those who try to control or have told us what science says, when if you just think about it for a moment, on most issues, there may even if there's a consensus of science, not every scientist agrees with everything all the time. Scientists can't even agree on the benefits or the lack of benefits on vitamin C. So, uh, when it comes to um, these restrictions, the wearing a mask and social distancing, it just came out that the social distancing of six feet was just made up, completely made up, that there was that there's zero scientific evidence for that at all. Um, and yet there were those who were doctors who were before who were saying, oh yeah, science says six feet, we need to follow that. So I'm like, a lot of things don't add up. And so, but what I want to get at is that the way that this disease has been covered, it's generated a lot of fear, an enormous amount of fear. And so, and we respond to that. Now, the way we respond to these kinds of, of situations as, as believers is we do need to respond and, and evaluate what's happening really through the lens of the Word of God. Now, obviously, the Word of God is not telling us about the details concerning a virus. Uh, the Word of God isn't telling us uh, whether or not we should wear a mask. You know, we, we, need to do, we need to read the studies for ourselves and all those types of things. But the Word of God does help us to understand our own fear of this. Are we afraid because we're afraid of death? Is that what we're afraid of? Because we face death all the time. There is no such thing as a life lived without risk. And so the Bible is to inform us as Christians how we are to live and respond to things. And I do believe that for a good number, and I have no idea what that percentage would be, but a good number of believers have not really passed the smell test, so to speak. They, we've not done well. Uh, we've allowed panic to rule our life. We have lived in fear. Uh, remember that you can, you can if, you, if you believe that the precautions were necessary, you can follow all the precautions, but not be in fear. To follow the precautions doesn't mean you're in fear. But there are those who are following the precautions and they were driven by fear. That's a problem. So whether you were following the protocols or not following the protocols, if your motivation was, was out of fear, that's problematic for the believer because we're not to live in fear. We are to live by faith in God. Our faith in God really does affect every aspect of life. It is not just religious truth. The Bible does cover everything. Our, our, the way we react to the world, the way we react to the news, the way we react to information, the way we respond to each other, the way we respond to those we disagree with, the way we respond to those we do agree with. Um, all of these things are laid out for us in Scripture. And there's to be this maturity or a growing maturity uh, in our lives where, we're, where as we grow spiritually, we're also maturing emotionally and intellectually and all the rest. And so it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. There's always been trouble in the world. There's always been things that can cause us to be fearful in the world. And believers are to be different because we recognize certain truths. 
One of those truths is this is not our permanent home. This world has been deeply cursed by sin. One day it will be cleansed. And when it's cleansed and recreated, then we'll be living here for all of eternity. But not until then. Not until the sin issue is dealt with. And that is where all these things come from. Remember that the virus is here because of sin. The fear of the virus is here because of sin. The overreaction is here because of sin. So we need to recognize that and then and then respond appropriately as believers. And again, there's plenty of room for us to even disagree on the specifics of how we are to live. But we're not to be driven by fear. We are to be driven by our love for God and really our love for each other. And so here, Paul is telling us that one of the ways that's going to be accomplished in our life is we need to recognize that we are spiritually, in a spiritual sense, we really are dead to the power of sin and that I am alive to Christ. And that is to have a dynamic impact in my life. In other words, an impact in my life that can be seen, that is visible uh, in the way that I live my life. It doesn't mean that I wear a sign. It doesn't mean that I have to exaggerate uh, my attitude and somehow pretend that I'm you know, overly spiritual. But there is to be this confidence that we have in God that the world not only doesn't understand, they may not at times like. They don't like that. That is immaterial to us. It's irrelevant to us as believers. We need to live in a quiet confidence in God and in the sovereignty of God. There's a, a set of commentaries by Hendrickson, William Hendrickson. He was a pastor and a lot of his sermons uh, were turned into basically commentaries and several books of the New Testament. And he says this. He says, At this point, doctrine makes way for exhortation. What has been established, namely, that believers are in principle dead to sin and alive to Christ, must become the abiding conviction of their hearts and minds. The takeoff point for all their thinking, planning, rejoicing, speaking, and doing. They must constantly bear in mind that they are no longer what they used to be. Their lives from day to day must show that they have not forgotten this. Let me read to you from the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, in other words, because all that's true, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So Paul is telling his readers, he's telling us to reflect on our position in Christ and to place two things into our spiritual bank account. Now, these are to be those things that are always, in a sense, on our mind. These are things that we never really forget as far as who we are. Number one, we are dead to the power of sin over us. We don't have to sin. And number two, we are alive to God in Christ. Before we became believers, remember we were dead to God. No matter what we thought emotionally, we were dead to God. So Paul then wants us to take time to consider these facts, to make this exercise habitual. It's, it's not just giving it an occasional casual thought. So let me give you uh, something that would, might be a good, a good way for you to accomplish this. Because, when he, when he, because of the emphasis here on us thinking about this on a regular basis, he doesn't tell us how regular we should do this. But it is to be something that's on our mind. So here's, here's something that you can do. So when you go to church on Sunday, and you know usually we arrive at church, and we see people, we talk, we have conversations, uh, you know, before church and all that's great. But I would uh, ask you to consider this. That when it's about seven minutes before the hour, because, you know, when we start, we start at 1030, so it's the half hour. But about seven minutes before we start, kind of end those conversations and go and sit. And then think about the fact. Think about your life. Think about that spiritually... You're dead to the power of sin, that you are alive to God, that you are about to engage in worship with other believers, 
and that you know that your worship will be accepted by God because you're alive to God. Being alive to God means that you will be able to hear what he says. You, you will hear spiritually. Hearing spiritually is not hearing some voice in the, in the clouds. It's hearing the scripture. Whether the scripture is read, whether the scripture is explained, and we do both in church. You know, we just, we have a public reading of scripture. And then we also um, expound on scripture in the sermon. The idea is, is that we hear spiritually. We hear the scripture. We are able to do that because we're alive to God. Uh, we pray, confessing our sins, because we are alive to God. We know that he hears us. Our goal is to become more aware of our sins so that we can rid ourselves of them. And then also um, to be, be reminded that we are forgiven by God through Christ because I'm alive to God. That when I, when I think about my struggles during the week, perhaps I'm struggling in the fact that I'm, I'm still kind of holding a grudge against somebody. Well, I'm, I'm dead to sin. I, I don't have to do that. How does Christ want me to respond? That's a, that's, a good, that's a real thing. Perhaps I've not been getting along with my wife or my husband for several weeks. That, that, that's a problem. I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to do that. I don't have to do that. How does God want me to respond to my wife or to my husband? Perhaps I've been spiritually lazy and I've, I'm not taking time to speak to my kids about the Lord. I'm not praying with them. I'm not being a good example. But well, that needs to be addressed. And so I need, to, I need to remind myself that I'm not like everybody else out there. I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm dead to that kind of life. I don't have to feed my flesh, so to speak. I have to feed my spirit. And so as I worship, I want my spirit to be fed, to be encouraged, um, to, be motiv to be motivated. And so... If you at least do that, take time on a Sunday morning before worship to engage your mind in those things, That's, that may be very helpful for you as a Christian. He says this, I'm going on with, with Hendrickson. He says, this is one of the benefits of meditation. Not just that we meditate and think about the verse or passage itself, but also what the verse or passage means. These are profound truths. Now, a quick word on meditation. When we meditate on the truth of the Word of God, meditate on the Scripture, the idea of meditating is that we think about it over and over again. So it's not just that we think about it for just a few seconds and move on. The idea is that we mull it over. Uh, let's say that you have memorized the verse or, or you've read it. So you look at it again and perhaps you read it slower. Then, then you ask yourself, and let's say you're reading Paul. So you ask yourself, this verse that, I, that I'm thinking about, where does it appear? Is it in Romans chapter 6? What, what's going on in Romans chapter 6? Why does Paul say this? And think about it some. Uh, think about what it, what it means. What, what is God telling you to do? What does God want us to know? It may be that you, will, you, you need to think about that verse for several weeks in a row. Um, and so you take your time to really allow it to to be absorbed into your mind and into your soul, so to speak. So again, he reminds us that the truths of Scripture are profound truths. He says, this is then preventative theology. So Paul then, in verse 11 of chapter 6, is calling us to make it our practice to reflect upon our union and identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he knows that through digestion and assimilation of this truth will serve to curb sins, so we don't have to confess sins as frequently. So you see, as we, as we dwell on the Word of God in that way, as we meditate, the, remember that, that when you dwell on Scripture, you're not just dwelling on just facts. It's not, you're not reading an encyclopedia. We're dwelling on eternal truths that are alive. They are spiritually alive. They are energized by the Spirit of God. So as we think about what the Word of God means, even if, in a sense, what you're thinking about doesn't have at least in your mind, a direct application to what you're struggling with. It, it may probably much more than you think, but let's just say at this moment, you don't think that it does. Because we so sometimes we think, and this is probably because of our Americanism, we think that if, if it's not addressing what I'm going through right now, then I need to move on. That's not how the Bible works. Um, it's kind of like uh, 
a, a, a teenager who wants to get stronger and they decide to only drink protein drinks. Well, but, but they need other nutrients as well. So just to focus on what they, what they think they need is not helpful. It, they're not going you know they're not going to turn to other foods and say well I don't I, I don't need that because it doesn't address my issue no they need to have more of a a balanced diet when I say balanced that doesn't mean that you have equal amounts of vegetables and meat and all the rest I, I don't think that's actually correct but the idea is that we are eating and getting the proper nutrients that our body needs so when it comes to our spiritual growth we should not be determining what we think we need from the Word of God we're just we're told by God to uh, dwell on, on the whole counsel of God, and so you just you mow forward, you just move forward, dwelling on whatever it is that either strikes your fancy, uh, what is you're interested in, or maybe you've you've purposely picked a certain chapter or book that you want to work through, and, and God will work in your life that way. But again, as you meditate on the Scripture and you think about what it means, uh, God uses that to continue to transform your heart. As your heart changes then the way you think changes, the way that you feel changes, the way that you respond changes, what you value changes. Uh, so there's this very real internal transformation that's taking place. And, and that's what Paul is really, all that is envisioned in this, in these things that he's talking about. So again, this all begins with what we've seen, which is we need to consider ourselves dead to sin alive to God. Now we've come across this word consider before. Paul has used it earlier on, and it's an important word, so we want to go over it again, briefly, so that we can understand what it is that he wants us to do, because consider is, it's a, it's a verb, it's something that, that he wants us to engage in. So what is it? Remember that the, the Greek word is logozomai, which means to consider or to reckon. Um, so it refers to a settled conclusion by careful study and reasoning. So as we read through the scripture, as we think about the scripture, we become uh, settled on what it's actually saying because we have, we've studied it. Remember, to study it is to spend time thinking about it, learning it, whether you're hearing it being taught by someone else or you're reading books on it. That's the idea. Um, but we come to a reasoned conclusion. So it's not just some uh, emotional tick that we have. Uh, so, so again, to, to consider yourself dead to sin refers to a process of reasoning that arrives at a conclusion. This conclusion is, is not only then that I'm dead to sin, but what does that mean? What does it mean that I'm dead to sin? So again, the idea is that I'm thinking about something in detail. I'm thinking about it in a logical way. That's what God wants us to do. I'm pondering it. I'm drawing the proper conclusions through the use of reason. God has given us a mind that can reason and he expects all of us to use that. So that's not just what only certain people are to do. That's what all believers are to do, regardless of their age and regardless of their education. So even if you're 12 years old, you are to reason through the scripture and think about it. If you are 72 years old, we are to continue to do the same thing. In the book of Romans, uh, the word consider is often a in the present tense and it's an imperative mood that means that it is a it is a command paul has been building this case in chapter five and so we are commanded to consider this continuously and that goes back to where we, that's where we get the idea from but this is to be an ongoing thing and so i said again that doesn't mean every day but it's a conscious decision on your part to think about this basic truth and so whether you do it on Sunday mornings or whenever you want to do it, uh, the idea is that we are to think about it. Uh, it's a good thing to, to bring up in your mind if, if you normally pray before you go to bed is to spend a little bit of time thinking about it. Um, so again, the idea is that we are now to continually count on the fact of what God's actually done, that God has actually done this work in me so that I am now, I really am dead to sin. Uh, it's not a promise that God's made. It's not getting myself worked up in an emotional tizzy where I kind of raw, raw myself. I'm not going to give in to temptation because that only lasts about 30 seconds. Um, it's not that we are pretending that something is true. 
Uh, but it's something that we know is true. We are believing what God has said he would do. We are believing that God really did do it. Therefore, it really is true. And so you and I can depend upon it. We can stake our life on it because it is an actual fact. I've mentioned this work before. It's called Weast Word Studies. Very good, helpful, a little tiny four-volume study. It really is tiny. It's, I mean, the books are, are short. They're not big ones. Um, but he says this. Uh, he says, There is a game in which a blindfolded person is brought into a room and made to stand on a table which rests on um, or a board which rests on some books on the floor. Two young men lift the board about a foot off the ground and they warn the man standing on the board to not bump his head against the ceiling. Thinking that he's near the ceiling, he loses his balance and falls off. He lost his balance and he fell because he reckoned himself where he was not. Just so, a Christian who fails to count upon the fact that the power of the sinful nature is broken in his life fails to get consistent victory over it, with the result that he lives a mediocre Christian life. He considers himself where he is not. Another young man is blindfolded and stood on the board, but he knows the game. When the board is lifted and he is warned, don't bump your head against the ceiling, he remains perfectly straight. He maintains his equilibrium because he reckons himself where he actually is. So it is with the Christian who counts upon the fact that the power of the sinful nature is broken. He knows that he does not have to obey it, that he has the power to say no to it. He turns his back on it and does what is right. The Christian who does not count upon the fact that the divine nature is implanted in his inner being goes on uh, living his Christian life as best he can, more or less, in the energy of his own strength. What is the result? He exhibits a mediocre Christian experience. But the believer who counts upon the fact that he is a possessor of the divine nature ceases from his own struggles that live in the Christian life. He avails himself the life of God that is supplied in the divine nature. So the first adjustment that Christians should make is that of counting upon the fact that the power of indwelling sinful nature is broken and the divine nature imparted and, and ordered his life on that principle. So, what do we do? Well, several things. Number one, first, as we saw in Romans chapter 6, we need to make it a habit to think about the fact that we are dead to sin and alive to God. We are to think logically about what that means and what the consequences of this truth should mean. So again, we're thinking about it in terms of being alive to God and thinking about it in terms of being dead to sin. Being dead to sin is being dead to the power of sin. The strength of temptation is specifically what we're talking about here. We don't have to give in. No matter how bad we may think we want something, we're not a slave to the way we feel. Secondly, it tells us in Colossians to seek those things which are above. That's just another way of saying that we should, we should seek after the things of God. It's a command in Colossians to seek after the things of God, to seek after the things that concern God, the things that are, are of God. That has to do with our schedules, our activities, just how we spend our time. So again, that doesn't mean you can't spend your time pursuing your favorite hobby. Of course you can. Um, but it does mean that you never allow that hobby to get in the way of your relationship with God or your relationship with your spouse or your children. You're able to maintain a balance. Uh, when it comes to your schedule, that means that you don't allow your schedule to dictate your life. There are moments in time where our schedule will dictate our life, where it seems that the demands on our time just come from all over the place and we are almost a slave to it. But we are to make sure that that is a short-lived experience. Uh, if that continues on for a long period of time, we need to take control of our life. At some point, we need to take control of our life and say, wait a minute, what am I doing? Uh, whatever it is I'm pursuing, I'm pursuing the wrong thing. And we need to adjust that. Uh, and that's and So again, that comes back to this idea of thinking about your life and thinking about uh, the fact that you're dead to sin. Remember, sin, the temptation to sin comes in all forms. Uh, and, it, and it is often dressed up as something good. Pursuing your responsibility at work. Pursuing um, a good paying job so you can provide for your family. Uh, pursuing those experiences that you can share with your family that you know, create memories and a bond. All that's good stuff. But those things can become sinful. 
because they then dominate your life and they and they edge out or squeeze out the things of uh, uh, the other the other things of God. I'll I'll put it that way. Thirdly, we need to set our mind on things above. That means we are to have a mindset. We are to be mindful. Um, it is uh, this activity of using our mind involves our will, our affections, our conscience. It's a command to do this. Uh, this is not the physical things that we do, but this is the things that we think about, about what it is that we love. It involves the whole man. Uh, we are to set our affection on heavenly things. Therefore, because of the yearning of our hearts, we would cling to these things and make right decisions concerning life. So, you need to think about what you love. Do you love your wife or your husband? That's a good and proper thing. It's not in place of God, but we do. But we are following God by doing that. So then, how do we express our love? How do I show my love to my spouse? How do I live my life so that, I, so that my life reveals that this person is important in my life? Am I showing love by also leading this person spiritually? Do I talk to them about spiritual things? Do we pray together? Do we read the Bible together? Do we, or, or are we checking on each other to make sure that we're reading the Bible, at least each on our own? Do we go to church together and worship together? Those uh, types of things. Um, so we're always evaluating where we are, just on a regular basis, to make sure that, that we're not um, out of whack and that we're not spending time uh, so much time doing something else we love to the detriment of, of other things that are important. And our lives can be f- really full and robust and almost, in a sense, a balancing act. Busyness is not a sign of godliness. We need to remember that. So I do believe that for many of us as Christians, we will probably will spend a lot of time through the years of our life uh getting rid of things in our life it's kind of like in your in your home it, you know how it is if somebody's living in their home for 30 years and they're going to move they have a ton of stuff they got to get rid of a an enormous amount of things that they've been storing up or hoarding or just didn't get rid of and and they don't really realize how much there is until they have to go through it all so we naturally collect stuff it just it just kind of happens so the same thing happens with our lives we just naturally take on more things uh, and, and left really paying attention to it. So then there are times that we have to evaluate life. It's okay, I need to get rid of some things. I've got too much on my plate, um, and having too much on our plate doesn't honor God. Now, that doesn't mean that that's not an excuse to be lazy. It's none of those things. Uh, but again, we want to make sure that we're not neglecting the things of God and the responsibilities God has given us. And God has given us responsibilities, not only to pursue righteousness, holiness, and to pursue our, our relationship with Him, but, but He's also commanded us to pursue our relationship with our spouse, and to pursue our relationship with our children, and to pursue our relationship with other people, and, have, and to be an influence on them. You know, He's, he's given us that responsibility. So, um, there, there are, there's going to be times in your life I think it should be a semi-regular thing that we need to evaluate what we are and then get rid of those things. Some of them will be good so that we can preserve what is best. And that really can at times be difficult, uh, especially for westernized believers because we have so much luxury. We have an enormous amount of free time that we have just filled up, an enormous number of, of I guess you would say, gadgets that do make our life much easier. They give us more free time that we fill up. And um, so we, we need to make sure that we uh, get a handle on that and don't allow those things to get a handle on us. And and that is that is what, what Paul is talking about here. We need to make sure that what we're yearning for not only pleases God, but the intensity with which we yearn for it pleases God. So we've used the example, an individual loves their children, but they love their children to the point that their children have become an idol. Okay, that's, that's sinful. God, that's not, doesn't please God. We normally need someone else to point that out to us, and then we get angry when they do, because we, we're selfish people, and we just don't, we don't like it when others call us on things that they may observe. Uh, it may be the concept of freedom. Maybe you want financial freedom, and there's nothing wrong with that. 
a lot of people aren't going to get that. And maybe you're in a position to be able to attain that. But remember, it's not everything it's cracked up to be. You, you can't sacrifice everyone and everything else in your life now to get that in 10 years. Uh, there needs to be another way for you to approach that, a way that honors the Lord. Uh, so maybe we're yearning for that freedom. And it, it can be all kinds of freedom that we want. Um, that can be a problem. So we want to make sure that we that we don't allow our hearts to cling to the wrong thing that can lead us to making bad decisions. The flip side of this, of set your, your mind on the things of God, is we don't set our mind on the things of earth. Uh, again, the things on earth are not in themselves sinful, but they become sinful if we seek them and they have preference over other things. J.B. Lightfoot was a kind of a Greek scholar, Christian man, and let me read to you how he translates uh, these verses. He says, If this be so, if you were raised with Christ, of you were, uh, 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 of you were translated into heaven, what follows? Why, you must realize the change. All your aims must center in heaven. All your thoughts must abide in heaven, not on the earth. For I say it once, and once again, you have nothing to do with mundane things. You died to the world. You are living another life. So it's just another way of pointing out to us that nothing in this life is permanent. Now, we don't want to go overboard and somehow begin to think that this life is not important. This life is very important. The way we live, how we live, is very important to God, very important to others, and is important to us. So this is not that we're so heavenly minded that we dismiss everything on the earth and um, almost try to live as a Buddhist who tries to become detached from everything on the planet. That, that's not pleasing to God. God has created us to live here and to manage uh, our life and to manage this planet in a way that honors Him. That's a responsibility that He's, that he's never rescinded and that we ha will have until the day we die. And I believe then when, when we are when there's the new heaven and new earth and we are living uh, in, in the eternal uh, new world, that responsibility will still be ours to live and to manage the world that God has created for his glory. And so um, we are to live a, a, and to pursue a full life and not somehow begin to uh, think that nothing here matters. Because the moment we begin to think that nothing matters, then pretty soon we, we will think that people don't matter. And then we mistreat them. And that's a sin. Again, Romans 8. I mean, I'm sorry, Romans 6, beginning of verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now for the new, the new part. Therefore, because of everything he's just told us, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So again, remember we saw in Romans uh, 6.11, make it a habit to think about the fact we're dead to sin and alive to God. Secondly, we are to seek those things that are above. Thirdly, we are to set our mind on those things that are above. Verse 12, Therefore, that is a conjunction. That's what that word is. It's a conjunction. And it introduces a logical result from the preceding information he's just given to us. So the knowing and the reckoning or the knowing and the considering of, of the preceding 11 verses, this juncture marks really a very important therefore in the Bible for believers. Paul is saying this. Don't just sit in the classroom or don't just sit in the sanctuary and talk about the truths you've just learned, but live out these truths. 
So this is not where we shake our head in agreement, say, wow, that's really good. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, th this is really profound. Um, this is not just that we, we feel stronger spiritually. The idea here is that we need to apply. It's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, you can go to a seminar on dieting and losing weight. Maybe not one that you would choose to go to, but let's say that your doctor told you you need to lose weight because you're going to have some trouble if you don't. You can go to a, uh, uh, to a, to a seminar and let's say that the speaker is a, is a very good speaker and they present the material really well. And so you feel motivated. You, you feel excited. In, in one sense, you almost feel as if the weight's already starting to come off and you're already healthier. And so in that moment, you are gung-ho. In fact, many of these seminars, what they would do is they then offer you books and supplements to get you on your way. And, and they want to get you at that moment because they know that when you leave, whatever your feeling is going to fade. So, so while you are excited about everything that's going on, oh man, I'm, I'm into this, that you're going, to, you're going to spend a couple hundred bucks on the supplements and get yourself ready to go. A lot of people will spend that money on those books and they won't read them. A lot of people will, read, will spend money on those supplements and they'll take them for a little while and say, ah, they're not doing much for me. That didn't work for me is what they'll say. Well, the idea of church is not for us to go and get all excited like that. And then by the time we crawl into bed Sunday night, we're back to how we were the week before. Paul wants it to be a very real change. It doesn't really have much to do with our emotions. Our emotions may be involved to one degree or another, but it has to be much more than that. Just like the individual who goes to that seminar who is, let's say, truly serious. It doesn't matter if they, if they feel motivated. If they're committed and they're going to follow through, that's what matters. Uh, the secret to losing weight, the secret to successful dieting, the secret to a successful workout program is really only one thing. It's consistency. Is you do it. Day in and day out. That It's not a secret, but that's the secret. Um, almost all diets will work for you to lose weight. Most any workout program will work to help you get in better shape. Some may be a little dangerous for you. You may not know that, but in the end, most of them are going to work if we, if we do them. And so... All these different programs have these testimonials of people, oh yeah, this worked so well for me, this happened, this happened, and they're probably telling the truth. It did work for them because they stuck to it. And so when it comes to what Paul is talking about here, same idea. Don't just sit there and, th and think about it. We need, to, we need to apply these truths, live them out. So, therefore, because of the fact the truth that in my spiritual bank account I am to I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is why I am not to let sin continually exert control over my body the way it did before I was baptized into his death and raised to walk in newness of life. It depends on who I make a choice to submit to, sin or Christ. Yielding my rights to the Spirit of Christ, moment by moment, day by day, this surrender brings actually true freedom that's why many people have encouraged believers to begin each day by reading the bible it's not that it's magical it serves as a reminder you are learning or remind yourselves of truths but it's a reminder that you belong to god why am i reading this i'm a child of god why am i reading this this is how god speaks to me why am i reading this because this is the truth of God that would give me wisdom for life. Why am I reading this? Because I need to be reminded of who I am in Jesus Christ, that I'm dead to sin and alive to God. That's why you're reading that. Why am I reading this? Because I need comfort, I need encouragement, I need motivation. All those things I need. That's why we begin that day, or begin our day with, uh, with reading of the scripture. That's not a command. There are some people, that's not how they begin their day. They, they do it at other times, and that's fine. I'm just throwing that out there as a reason why so many uh, have have done it that way, and and some have said, well, you know, I just I don't have enough time in the morning. That's normally why then we then get up earlier. Why am I getting up earlier?
because I love God and my spiritual life is important. Uh, if you get up earlier, that may if you get up a half an hour early, earlier, you may have to go to bed a half an hour earlier. All right, but but we make that decision because we're Christians because this is important. Again, sin that he's talking about in Romans six is again remember it's the sin, it's the principle of sin, it's the moral principle of sin, it's the force of sin. Uh, it's personified as an evil king who always wants to enslave us. He always wants to rule over us. He wants to subject us to its power. Uh, and so that's, again, what he's reminding us of. Um, so, the again, this there's this command that we're given. That's why it's a present tense, uh, which is ongoing, imperative. It's a command. Stop letting the sin continue to remain in your physical body. So, in Romans 6, Paul is not necessarily only focusing on the principle of sin. I mean, on, on the actual sins we commit. He is, but he is actually looking at what is behind the actual sins we commit. The sins that we commit, holding a grudge, not forgiving, uh being spiritually lazy, whatever it happens to be, we do those things because we are allowing sin to dominate our life. Uh, that oftentimes comes in the form of our emotions. We allow our emotions to rule over us in a sinful way. So notice I'm not saying that our emotions are sinful, though they can be. But we allow sin, the principle of sin, to use our emotions to rule us. And so we're drawn by that. Um, my feelings are hurt. I don't want to forgive. That's, that's emotionally, being emotionally driven. So in that sense, the power of sin has my emotions in its grip and is seeking to, to cause my will to submit to its power. And that takes place. I, I don't forgive. I hold a grudge. That's, that's, how, that's how it's working. And so that's what he wants us to understand here. So Paul is saying, stop letting this continue. He's implying that these believers were allowing that to happen. And so again, his point is because of our position in Christ, okay, back to our identity with Christ, that I am dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ, I no longer have to obey the demands of sin. And I really need to get a handle on That's why, and I've always thought this would be very interesting. When I was working as a chaplain in the jail, um, I learned early on through a lot of studying and also working with people, because, uh, and and this kind of relates to this idea. A lot of individuals that are that are incarcerated have led lives where uh, they are also involved in drug use or alcohol abuse. Not all of them, but many of them to one degree or another, or at least it's a part of their, their background, part of their life. I, I have learned that for individuals that um, when, when, a, when a person becomes physically sexually or severely emotionally abused in their life that stunts their growth emotionally it doesn't mean that they that they don't grow emotionally but it stunts their growth that's why then an individual who may be 30 who was physically abused may be may act like an immature 20 year old but along with that whatever age the person begins to abuse alcohol or become involved in the abuse of drugs, whether it's illegal or legal, that also has the same effect. It stunts them emotionally. So uh, it was not uncommon for me to talk to young men in their, in their mid-20s. It's like talking to a 12-year-old. They didn't intend for it to be that way, but, but they're very emotionally immature. And that's because of all this abuse in their life. What I noticed is that when these men became true believers in Jesus Christ and they began to grow spiritually, something else also happened. They began to mature emotionally. They began to kind of make up for lost time. And they would become very mature. There's a few men, a few young men that I remember meeting where the maturity was, in a sense, off the charts. And what I mean by that is, uh, I, I, I won't tell you who it is, but there was one young man that I came across. He was charged in the beginning. He was a juvenile, but
but being charged as an adult, eventually with murder. And he was kind of a, I mean, he was a, a kind of a punk kid, a nice punk kid, but he was he was kind of a punk. And even though he was 17 when I met him, I mean, he, he was like a nine-year-old, just the way he responded to people and the way he responded to situations. And he became a believer uh, in Christ. And it really was astounding that um, really right before my eyes, through several weeks, he went from having the maturity level of a, of a nine-year-old to having the maturity level of a, of a 17-year-old who was raised correctly. And then um, he continued to mature. So by the time he was 18, because he was in my, I had a discipleship dorm and he was there for a couple of years. When he turned 18, he was uh, kind, of, kind of showed the maturity of what we would expect a 25 or 30-year-old to exhibit as far as maturity levels. He had men in their 40s who were coming to him for advice. I asked him one day, I said, so what are you, what are you telling them? You're 18 years old. He says, well, I just tell him what the Bible says, which is exactly what he should be doing. So it's quite astounding to see that. And I saw that on a wide range, a lot, wide, wide, wide range. The scale was a wide one uh, where not everybody matured in that way or to that degree, but everyone who became a believer did mature uh, emotionally. And that's a very important aspect of the Christian life because oftentimes one of the main ways that sin dominates our life is through our emotions. Uh, and so because we feel so strongly about certain things, that dictates or drives our behavior, drives our decisions. And so that's why uh, Christians have always put an emphasis on emotional maturity. Uh, because it really goes hand in hand with spiritual maturity. Again, remember we are whole people. You don't you don't mature spiritually and not mature emotionally. It, it, we're, that that's not going to happen. You can gain more knowledge of the Bible intellectually, but if that's all you're getting, you're not necessarily going to become more mature. You're not going to become more wise, and that would be seen by again your immature attitudes. Um, so it's just something for us to think about. Um, so let me kind of go through an example here. Well, uh, I think I may have to stop. I won't be able to continue here because um, I was going to talk about, um, kind of use a couple of examples, more examples of uh, our emotions and how we kind of interact with our emotions and how that affects our outlook on life and our decisions. So let me just challenge you to, uh, to, to look at your life and, and maybe to look at your life uh, as to where you are emotionally. How do you respond to circumstances and people when things don't go your way? Now, n none of us do that perfectly. All of us, I think, from time to time, can pout. You know, we can we can throw a fit. Um, but if that's your norm, there's a big problem somewhere. Now, it's a problem anyway if we do it even every now and then, and we need to continue to mature. You know, or maybe you feel sorry for yourself. Uh, but but we want we really want that to be changed, and I don't think we. That isn't changed because you say, well, tomorrow I am no longer going to allow my emotions to run my life. Well, you probably will. And you're probably making that statement out of emotion because you're feeling a certain way. But I do believe that uh, you can grow emotionally, mature emotionally. Really, I would say it's, it, it can appear to be in an indirect way. We, we might be praying specifically about our problem with anger and some of the other things. But as we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God and apply it, the emotional maturing will take place. I don't think we really have to emphasize that aspect of our life. It's going to happen because we're going to become different people. We're going to think differently and therefore we're going to react differently. We're going to feel differently. Uh, and so that's really what... It, and, and, and if you have a control on your emotions in that way, you will truly be able to enjoy life to its fullest. Your emotions will no longer get in the way. They will really be the icing on the cake. You'll really be able to enjoy life with, with great joy and happiness because your emotions will be sitting where they're supposed to be sitting. So we're not talking about squashing them, but we are talking about them really being free uh, to be exercised in a way that honors God, uh, but not allowing sin to dominate our emotions and to use our emotions to really keep us in subjection to the power of sin. So let's pray. And then uh, next time we get together, we'll, we'll be together in person. 
Father in heaven, we thank you again for your kindness and grace and love, and again for the word. We pray that as we meditate on these things that Paul has given us, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to think about them a great deal, that we would really desire to, to grow and, and to become what you would have us to become, so that we may be free, free from our sin, free from sometimes our dumb decisions, free from our emotions, to be free actually to feel uh, and experience life as it was meant to be felt and experienced. Help us to have a strong hunger to mature spiritually, to know and to apply your word. Help us, Father, to meditate on the things that Paul has told us to meditate on. The Father, we may perhaps become wiser than our years and that our life may honor you in every way. And so, Father, we thank you again for your word and for this time in your word. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.